0: I invite you to turn with me this morning the words to which I would call your attention. Come to us from Genesis chapter 49. We're going to read beginning in verse 1, and we'll stop at verse 12. As we sing what we call Christmas carols at this time, I hope... A couple things you'll notice. You notice just the depiction of the scene uh, from Scripture of the Lord's nativity. But another thing that you notice as you read these Christmas carols is the optimism that comes through them. It's singing about the hope that the Lord brings to the world and especially a child of hope to us is born reflects on the, the kingship of Christ that His reign shall have no end. He brings peace to His people this is an optimism that was shared by uh, the patriarchs. One of the reasons that we're going back to Genesis is to, to see that um, the optimism in our Christmas carols, the hymns of the season, as it were, is an optimism that originated even with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They looked forward to a time to come. This is why Abraham bought a field and buried his family in it. Why did he do that? Because he knew that would be the spot he would be raised from the dead. That he would walk in the land of the living and praise the Lord. Let's read now Genesis chapter 49. This is the second to last chapter, beginning in verse 12. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men. And in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce and their wrath for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. His eyes are darker than wine and His teeth whiter than milk. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. O Lord Most High, we come and gather before You this morning at Your footstool, singing Your praises with the angels and our loved ones who've died in the Lord. And we ask now that You would Bless us with the presence of Your Holy Spirit. Enlighten our eyes. Cause them to shine with Your glory as we behold the wonderful things revealed to us in Your Word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be familiar with the flag of Scotland. Perhaps you are, of blue and white with a cross in between. What you may not know is that Scotland has two flags. The second flag of Scotland is not blue and white. It is uh, red and gold. And emblazoned on the middle of the flag of Scotland is a lion in the rampant form. What this means is it's a side view of the lion with his paws raised, ready to strike, his claws extended and his mouth open, ready to devour. This rampant lion symbolizes courage. As the king goes out with his army, he displays, he unfurls the flag, showing that he is noble, royal. It demonstrates his strength and his stateliness and his valor. It is only used in Scotland when the monarch is present. You might say that this flag would be an appropriate one for Christ, our King. And indeed, we will find it is His flag. As we look at Genesis chapter 49, especially verses 8 to 12, we We find that Christ is a victorious king whose inheritance is praise and whose people gather to him under a banner of strength. I think it's important at this point just to make a note about where we are in the narrative of Genesis. Chapter 49, as we mentioned before, is the second to last chapter. And and you know this part of Genesis because it's the story of Joseph. And you think about the story of Joseph and how Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers and they sent him down to Egypt, uh, setting the stage for the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Um, Joseph was there to deliver them from the seven-year famine. As we get to Genesis chapter 49, Jacob is nearing the end of his life. He is about to die. He's on his deathbed. In fact, at the end of the chapter, he will curl his feet up into the bed and breathe his last. But it's at this moment that he wants to bless his sons as they are all now in Egypt, away from the famine. It was at this moment that Joseph brought his two boys. Ephraim and Manasseh to Jacob and asked for his blessing. And it's at this moment that Jacob would bless his sons. Notice in verse 1, this is not just a blessing. Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what? What shall happen? This is not just a blessing, this is a prophecy. Jacob is telling his sons what will come to pass. What does the future hold for you? This is what Jacob is saying. But if you're attentive when you read Genesis 36 to Genesis chapter 50, what you notice is that even though Joseph is in the foreground, there is another brother who's playing a significant role in the background. In Genesis chapter 37, when Reuben and the brothers are suggesting that they sell Joseph into slavery, or that they kill Joseph, it's Judah who steps forward and says, no, let's not shed his blood. It's the next chapter, this odd place in Genesis chapter 38 that we have this interruption and a story seems to be inserted in a place that doesn't belong about Judah and a woman named Tamar. And it involves three emblems. His, his ring, his signet ring, and his staff, and his cloak. All three are things that would be associated with what? Kingship. We find further in the story that it is Judah who offers himself as a substitute for his brother Benjamin, saying, take me, not my brother. And so if you're paying attention, all along in this story that is about Joseph, suddenly underneath it all we find that it's a story about the redemption and the transformation of a young man by the name of Judah. So that as we get to chapter 49, who is the brother that comes to preeminence? It's not Joseph, it's Judah. And what we see with reference to Judah ultimately looking forward to the Lord Jesus Christ is that praise is his inheritance, he is fierce. He is a king; he will be victorious in war, and his land is bountiful. Notice, first of all, we see that praise is his inheritance. In verse eight: Judah, your brothers shall praise you; your your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies; your father's sons shall bow down before him. One of the things that seems odd about this statement from Jacob is that this was the statement that belonged to Joseph. You remember in chapter 36, Joseph had these dreams, didn't he? And when Joseph dreamed, he saw his brothers bowing down to him and doing homage to him. Well, here this privilege is given to Judah. It is transferred to the line of Judah and David ultimately resting on Christ the Savior. What's going to happen? His brothers are going to bow down. His brothers are going to do homage to Him. His brothers will praise Him, not Joseph. They will give Him honor. We also see that His will be the victory. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. The ones who won't bow down to you of their own will will find your, ne- your hand upon their neck forced to bow before them. Job, in chapter 16, verse 12, says, He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. Praise and victory and honor belong to Him. One of the blessings, I think, of life, I didn't experience this blessing, but some of you may have, but one of the blessings of life is to have an older brother who sticks up for you. I was the older brother who was constantly playing tricks. Uh, But there are some older brothers who stick up for uh, their younger brothers who come to their defense. Maybe on the schoolyard, you think of the bully who is there. He's trying to take your lunch money. And the older brother steps in to protect his younger brothers, his younger siblings. As we reflect on the honor that is due to Judah, We remember that Christ, by the spirit of adoption, is our elder brother. We remember that all of us who are united to Christ, we don't praise Him as strangers. When we come before the Lord Jesus Christ, we come before Him as His brothers and sisters. In Romans chapter 8, let me read to you this passage, Romans 8, 12 to 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, listen, are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Do you hear this language of the Scriptures? is teaching what? That we are the sons of God making us the brothers of Christ. Do you know what that means? It means that His inheritance is your inheritance. His blessing is your blessing. And so as we worship on Sunday mornings, we are coming together. We come before the God-man as our elder brother. The One who has gone before us. The One who as our elder brother prepares a place for us by His own hands, building a city into which He will receive us. We pay homage to Him as his kingly right, we take confidence that his victory is our victory, and we bow to him and reverence him as our God. Notice secondly, not only is his, inherit- his praise is in his inheritance, but he is fierce. We, we notice a little change here about the, referencing the fierceness of Christ. <laughs> Jacob began by speaking to Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. And now there's a subtle shift in the language. Jacob said, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Judah Jacob used the imagery of a lion to refer to Judah's kingship. This imagery ultimately became associated with, with David's kingship. In fact, some commentators notice that, that the, uh, the language here, the, the numerical value equals the numerical value of David's name. Ultimately, this would become associated with the kingdom of Christ. Let me re- read to you Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Christ is the lion of Judah. I, last Sunday night, we were reading from Joel chapter three, and we talked about how God would roar from his holy mountain. And I shared a quotation from C.S. Lewis that I think is appropriate here too. And there's a moment in The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe where uh, all the Pevensey siblings had gone in and they were meeting with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And and they said, we're gonna take you to, to meet Aslan. And they said, Aslan is a lion. And suddenly the the children became... Hesitant about meeting a lion, and little Lucy, the youngest of the Pevensey children, she said, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Here, Jacob is referring to his young son as a lion cub. The imagery that becomes associated with the line of David and ultimately with Christ, our King, it is the image that is emblazoned on the flag of Scotland. And what we find is that at this point, Judah is a lion's cub, but in Christ, he is a full-grown lion who stands upon His holy mountain and roars to the comfort of His people and the terror of His enemies. Numbers In Numbers chapter 3, it's an interesting passage of Scripture because it describes the tabernacle of God and it describes the the, uh, people of Israel encamped around that tabernacle. And it says that each of them would camp according to their banner. And on the east side of that tabernacle was the tribe of Judah. I wonder, what do you think was emblazoned on the banner of the tribe of Judah? It was a lion. In Ezekiel chapter 3, we read of this angelic figure who has four faces, and on the right side is the face of a lion depicting the tribe of Judah. And as as the camp would unfurl, the the column of, of fire, the pillar of cloud, the column of fire would lift up and the trumpet would sound and gradually this camp would unfurl and unwind. And do you know who marched in front? It was Judah. All the people of God marching under the banner of the lion. Today, the body of Christ marches forward under the emblem of the lion. It is the emblem of our victorious Christ as we follow Him to victory. So if, there, if we had a Christian flag, if there were such a thing, it ought to be emblazoned with the image of a rampant lion. The one behind whom the people of God go as Christ vanquishes His enemies and makes them a footstool for His feet, according to 1 Corinthians 15. Of course He isn't safe. But He is good. Thirdly, we see that He is a king. Verse 10, "...the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between His feet." until tribute comes to Him. The scepter is the image of a a reigning king. He has received the scepter into His hand. It rests between His feet. What does this mean? He is seated upon His throne. And this is a picture of Christ as He is right now, having ascended up into heaven, seated on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He is one who possesses the scepter. We Read in Numbers 24, 17. I, I see him, Moses is saying, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. You see, here's the prediction uh, that a, a king is not accidental to Israel, it was always an expectation. A king is not a failure for Israel. A king is given to them, and he rises out of the tribe of Judah. And so we praise Christ. Even now, not that he will become a king, do you see, but that he is a king. Not that he will receive a scepter, but that he has a scepter. Not that one day he will rule over the earth, but today he is ruling over the earth. And this is important for Christians to understand. We are not marching forward to defeat, brothers and sisters. The message of the gospel is not a defeatist message. Christ's kingdom is not a weak kingdom, it is a kingdom of strength, it is a kingdom of valiance. We praise Him, though, that even though He is not safe, He is good. He is merciful to His people. He protects and cares for us and extends mercy to all who come before Him in fear and in reverence. Fourthly, notice with me that He will be victorious in war. Verse 11 Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. This is interesting language. You, you don't think of a man riding on a colt and then binding the colt to a vine, do you? We all probably have vines that grow in our yards. They're a nuisance and you go and you pull them up. You burn them, you do away with them. They're usually just a nuisance that's easily taken care of. But here, think about this. Here is the depiction that Jacob has of Judah's kingdom. It has a grapevine that you can tie a horse to. In... In the early 1500s, Cardinal Wolsey began to build Hampton Court. If you know anything about Hampton Court Palace, it is a a grand and a glorious place. In 1529, when Cardinal Wolsey's popularity began to go down, he gave Hampton Court to King Henry VIII, and that became Henry VIII's residence. In the 1700s, they went in and planted a grapevine, By the 1800s, the grapevine was four feet in circumference. Imagine that, four feet to walk around this grapevine. Today, the grapevine at Henry VIII's manor is 13 feet in circumference. On an annual basis, it produces somewhere around 600 pounds of grapes, That's unimaginable from one grapevine. This is how large it is. This is what Jacob is talking about when he's saying a grapevine that you can bind a colt to. It could be the picture of the wealth of Judah's land. I think, though, that it might be a little bit different picture. You see, one of God's favorite depictions of his people was a vine. In Psalm chapter 80, we read this in verses 8 and 9. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. You see, this is King Henry VIII's vine. It's the one that grows up. It's enormous. It is cared for and cultivated. It's the one to which Jesus Christ Himself binds his cult. What is this saying? It's a picture of Christ caring for his people. And under his care, what happening? The flourishing of his people, becoming a choice vine strong and hardy, producing the fruit that He has given to it. But what do we notice? He washes His garments in wine and His vesture in the blood of grapes. This is an interesting illustration. And here we have to remember the prophecy of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. What would the descendant of Eve do he would crush the head of the serpent, and how would he do that? With the heel of his foot? And so one of the chosen images of God's judgment coming to the nations through Christ is of a man crushing out the grapes in a wine press. Listen to Isaiah chapter 63. "I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in My wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on My garments and stained all My apparel, the blood of His enemies covering His garment. Revelation 14, Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who has the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle, And gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And as the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle, for 1,600 stadia. Do you see? This is a picture of the wrath of God carried out by Christ who is the vindicator of God's righteousness. What does He do? He tramples the enemies of God, spattering His garments with their blood. Christ will be covered head to toe in the blood of His enemies. But we're not enemies, are we? We are brothers. And we are covered by His blood. Therefore, the cup that Christ wished would pass from Him was not the cross. The cup of, was the wrath of God that would come upon Him as the substitute for our sins. So as we celebrate Christ's incarnation, we celebrate two things. We celebrate the fact that He took the wrath of God in our place, that he, the, the, the great juice that was squeezed out of that wine winepress into His cup, He drank it down, every bit of it. By God's decree, the serpent having bruised Him on the heel, He experienced physical death He became sin for us. But we also celebrate His final victory. As He will destroy all His enemies, treading them down like grapes in a wine press. This is the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. Lastly, we notice that His land is bountiful. Think of all of this imagery. Here is the one whose brothers will praise Him who will have the scepter, whose image is the lion, who will conquer all of His enemies, binding Himself to His people and cultivating them for His own glory. And now, in the last, what do we inherit? A bountiful land. Look with me at verse 12. His eyes are darker than wine and His teeth whiter than milk. Scripture Scripture gives very, very little in terms of descriptions of the physical appearance of Jesus. Almost as though it's intentionally withholding a physical appearance so that we will pay attention to who he was in his character. That's what's important, is that you know him according to his nature and what he does. Here is a physical depiction dark eyes. White teeth. A beautiful Grecian man, perhaps, or a Roman man with dark eyes and white teeth. But this is not just a a depiction of what he looks like. It's telling you what his land is like. His eyes are dark. Why are they dark? Well, because drinking wine makes your eyes red. An allusion to the effect of drinking wine on the eyes. They are reddened. And it reminds us of the beauty of Christ's kingdom. Remember Joel's prophecy in chapter 3, verse 18. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. The mountains will stream forth with wine, abundant wine for the people of God. And we remember Jesus' words about himself. We're going to get to this in chapter 12 of Matthew. Remember, they chastised John the Baptist. They said, Oh, he fasts. All his fasting and his asceticism. Jesus said, You criticize him because he doesn't eat and drink. And you remember what he said about himself? You criticize the Son of Man who comes eating and drinking. Eating and drinking, why? Because his is not a land of meager portions. His is a land of plenty. His is a land where day by day, moment by moment, you take your goblet to the mountains and they pour forth wine. They pour forth milk for the people of God. Their streams flow with clear water for the people of God. It is a place of abundance and His eyes are reddened with wine. His teeth are white as milk. The picture of health and strength. In Emmanuel's land, is an abundance of livestock and life. Christ is a victorious king whose inheritance is the praise of his people and whose people gather to him under the banner of strength. So as you rise to worship Christ this morning, you rise to worship the mature lion who defends His people, and who vanquishes His enemies. All who come in faith worship Him not as strangers, but as brothers. You are family to Christ. Having received the spirit of adoption, As you gather with the body of Christ, you do so under the banner of His headship, marching into the wilderness under the lion that blazes forth and declares the coming victory of Christ over all things. He Himself has power in heaven and in earth forever and ever and ever. This is our King. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Most High, we come remembering that you are not safe. Lord Jesus, we sing that you are meek and mild, and certainly you are so to those who come seeking your mercy, who empty themselves who say, "Oh Lord, You have the the words of life. But we dare not forget that those who will not yield to You in this life will not find Your hand of mercy. Instead, they will find Your strong hand upon their neck, bent down for judgment, tread upon by Your foot, whose blood will be spilled under the fury of Your wrath. We dare not forget that You are not safe. But we dare not forget either that You are good. Infinitely, unchangeably, and eternally good. And Your kingdom will be a a depiction of Your glorious goodness forever and ever to all Your people. Lord Jesus, we come to You by your Holy Spirit, as your brothers, to bow before you and say, All hail, King Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.